From WXXI News, this is Connections. I'm Evan Dawson. Our connection this hour is made in a college classroom. What is the professor teaching? What does their training and scholarship lend to a potentially contentious discussion of American history? How should students feel about being made to occasionally grapple with uncomfortable questions? In several dozen state legislatures, the subject of who sets the rules for education is on the table. Leading the changes is the state of Florida. Last spring, Florida's legislature passed the so-called Stop Woke Act. It was aimed at limiting teaching about topics related to race, sex, and gender in Florida public schools and workplaces. This winter, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis convinced the College Board to redesign its AP course in African American Studies. And now his administration has rolled out a plan to dramatically change the way American history is taught in higher ed institutions. House Bill 999 is under consideration in the Florida State House. Certain majors would be abolished entirely, majors focusing on gender studies or race, for example. The governor's political allies would be given the power to fire university professors if they taught lessons that ran afoul of the new rules. Those rules include a prohibition on anything related to identity politics, critical race theory, or even any subject that is theoretical in nature, like, I don't know, like like a whole lot of science. Um, And this morning, one of the leading critics of so-called wokeism wrote a piece about the Florida legislation. Yasha Monk is a German-American political scientist. He teaches uh, international affairs at Johns Hopkins University. Monk believes that college campuses have become too intolerant of conservative views and have treated conservative-minded students unfairly. He would seem to be a natural supporter of Florida's HB 999. Monk writes, quote, A closer look at the changes DeSantis is implementing in Florida reveals that they will make Americans less rather than more free. Anybody who believes in basic constitutional values like free speech should reject his blueprint for America's revival, even if, like me, they have their own misgivings about so-called wokeness, end quote. So why does Monk have a problem with this bill? He writes, quote, DeSantis claims that he is intent on defending free speech and academic freedom from the coercive power now enjoyed by a new set of radical ideas. But in the process, he is proposing to turn the state into an even more powerful censor, giving political appointees unprecedented authority over what students and faculty members can do and say. Universities across the country need to fight back against the legislative proposals in Florida. If they are to retain a modicum of academic freedom, they must defend the right of teachers and researchers to pose awkward questions and publish uncomfortable answers, irrespective of whether they offend the sensibilities of progressive activists or conservative trustees, end quote. Another common critic of American universities has been FIRE, the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression. But they, too, have come out against the Florida bill, saying, quote, Faculty teaching courses on history, philosophy, humanities, literature, sociology, or art would be required to guess what material administrators, political appointees, or lawmakers might label identity politics, end quote. And so how would this law, which could pass in Florida but is also being replicated in other states, how would it affect those who actually teach history? Here's Michael Oberg, a distinguished professor of history at SUNY Geneseo, writing, quote, Florida lawmakers are setting fire to the very idea that students should be exposed to ideas that challenge them, make them feel uncomfortable or aware of the obvious and yawning gap between the way things are and the way things ought to be. 
This country is not healthy, and the problems we face today have historical roots. Meanwhile, the entire historical profession has fallen victim to a process of slow strangulation as public university systems deal with declining state funding. Much of the extraordinary talent of a generation of historians has been squandered. Public historical illiteracy is growing by leaps and bounds, end quote. I have asked Professor Oberg to join us on the show to discuss how his own work in the classroom could be affected by such laws, not only his own, but his colleagues across the country. Uh, Michael Leroy Oberg, distinguished professor of history at SUNY Geneseo, author of numerous books on American history. Welcome back to the program. Uh, thanks for having me, Evan. Um, so I'm just going to ask you for your description of what each component, as you read, uh, you, you wrote a post that said you read HB 999, so we don't have to. Um, so let's start with the notion that this bill would prohibit professors and teachers from including a curriculum that teaches identity politics or critical race. I don't see definitions in the Florida law for what that means. Do you know what that means? Nor well, I don't know specifically what they mean either. But let's let's be clear. I mean, they, they've they've made quite clear what they they don't want taught. They don't want taught the notion that. They don't want students to to hear in their classrooms that America was created as a racist country, right? That's sort of how they they, they phrase it. That 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 academic historians, that college professors are teaching children or young people to to hate their country, and it just strikes me as the most absurd argument I've ever heard. I teach courses in in Native American history and early American history, so a lot of a lot of the controversies that are really bothering some of these folks are in areas I, I teach. Um, I also teach occasionally a humanities course, kind of a great books course where we wrestle with a lot of really big questions. So I, I've been in front of classrooms for 30 years, 29 years. And, <laughs> and any parent probably knows this as well, but one way to lo lose an audience of 18 to 22-year-olds is to start preaching and to take a highly dogmatic approach. It, it just turns them off. Historians, we're not doing anything close to what these folks are saying we're doing. And, and let me just give you an example, right? The, the, the Florida bill has this requirement that teachers cannot teach anything, professors cannot teach anything that, that, that defines American history. That's how they write it. Defines American history as contrary to the creation of a new nation based on universal principles stated in the Declaration of Independence. Okay. Well, that's... Okay, let's let's start with that, right? I mean, some of us might argue that a lot of those principles are, are are not so much in the Declaration, but in the Constitution, which came along 11 years later. But let's say that you're a you know a, a Birkenstock wearing Prius driving left wing professor, right? The the bet noir of of the DeSantis crowd in Florida, and I'm a, a grumpy conservative, and we're both teaching a course on the history of the American Revolution, about. Third of the way, halfway through that course, we're going to get to the Declaration of Independence. Right? Chronologically, that's where it falls. And you and I, you'd agree that, that we'd, we'd have to start with the preamble to the, to the Declaration of Independence and sort of look at the ideas that are expressed by Jefferson in that document, right? This, this notion that all men are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. Among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We'd have to look through that and explore it. And you and I, we, we might disagree over the intellectual roots of that document or what Jefferson was driving at. That's fine. We can have a debate over that. We argue it and we go to the evidence. And then you, you would agree with me, I think, that we would keep going. 
right? We, we'd have to go through the rest of the document. The, what was really interesting about the Declaration of Independence at the time was the long list of grievances that the colonists laid out, the things that George III had done that they needed to um, – that, that they saw as justification for this, this significant act of, of uh, declaring their independence. And we would talk through the things in the Declaration, right? The, the, the pattern of taxation imposed upon the colonists by parliament without the colonists' consent, the, uh, the quartering of troops in you – know, threatened through the Quartering Act and legislation like that, the, the intolerable acts. We would move on and talk about the, the shelling of coastal port towns during the revolution. All these things are things listed in the Declaration of Independence. And we'd march through that document, having our students read it, have our students wrestle with what it means. But then we get to the end of that document. And what do you have there? Well, you have Jefferson's denunciation of George III for unleashing on the, the inhabitants of the frontiers, the merciless Indian savage, savages. Um, you have Jefferson's denunciation of George III for appointing colonial governors who committed the cardinal sin in the southern colonies, right? They threatened to free the slaves. And we have to talk about that. And as many historians point out, right, one way to get one way the colonists came together was in opposition to what, what they shared in opposition, right? Colonists didn't like Indians, colonists didn't like enslaved people. Colonists were afraid of Indians, colonists were afraid of enslaved people. That's something that people in Massachusetts and South Carolina could agree on. It's one of the few things that people across the, the, the 13 colonies could agree on. We have to talk about this stuff. Um, there's a South Carolina bill too, um, a similar bill that says that um, teachers or college professors should not teach anything um, – should not teach that, that, that racism and slavery are anything other than um, deviations from authentic the authentic founding principles of the United States. Okay, let's let's look at those founding principles. The start of the Constitution, right? And you're you're way out on the left and I'm way out on the right. There's something in the Constitution, the original Constitution called the Three-Fifths Clause, right, which allowed slavers to count the, the enslaved population, each each enslaved person as 60% of a human being. And because of that, and there's no there's no we'd agree on this, there's no real debate. That gave the southern states more representation in Congress. Because they had more representation in Congress, they had more electoral votes. Because they had more electoral votes, they essentially had control of the judiciary. And the three-fifths compromise, three-fifths clause gave the southern states essentially control of the national government up until about 1860. Right? So how do we <laughs> how do we talk about that's in the founding documents? It's not a deviation. It's, it's not a deviation. It is fundamental to the Constitution. These laws, in in my view, are racist, in the sense that they want to exclude from discussion issues involving the fundamental nature of this country, which involves the history of enslaved people and indigenous peoples. You can't understand this country without it. And, 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 and so there has always – look, there's – as long as there have been history in schools, there has been a debate between – or a, a, a tension, right? A tension between history as civic education, right, as, as a means to provide informed and, and patriotic citizens and then, then history as an academic discipline. Right, the, the study of continuity and change across time and space measured in people, institutions, and culture. That's always been there, right? 
Much of the debate in the past is focused on K-12 education, what you're teaching younger people. Now we're moving into this attack on higher education, where you have an audience of, of people who are able to make their, up, up their own mind about a lot of issues, people we like to view as adults. And here you, you, you have state legislatures going after or threatening to go after um, educators in ways that, that will really put a stop to free inquiry um, real learning in ways that ought to concern anyone who cares about liberty and intelligence and, and freedom. You don't view this as just Florida? I don't view this just Florida. No, I think this has been around and coming for a long time. And, and look, it's, it's what, a, a, a dozen states. Um, the Penn Center had a, a report a couple of months back, a couple of weeks back, um, which they, they're, they're, they refer to these educational gag orders, right? This legislation being posed in, in, in about a dozen states. Um, much of it looking at, at, at K-12 education, but, but much of it looking at college ed- education as well. And this is significant nationwide, and I think it, it, it's, it's widespread. It was the heart of the Trump movement, right? After 1619 Project came out in the New York Times Magazine, um, Trump came out with his own American History Project, right, which, which essentially rejected everything the 1619 Project tried to say with, with sort of this patriotic claptrap about America's great. And it was, it was a deeply... It, it never got anywhere. Trump left office, you know, uh, shortly shortly after this got started. It was sort of a last ditch thing in his campaign. But but it's it, it's it's I think this is a widespread movement. I want to go back to your thought experiment though. Two professors, one more conservative bent, one more progressive bent, each teaching a set of American history, and you get to the end of the document, and then you have to grapple with what it means. I think the critics. And the critics do include sometimes fire or people like Yasha Monk, uh, the political commentator who, I mean, again, organizations and individuals who are opposed to what Florida is doing, but they do perceive to be, they, they do perceive, perceive a problem on campus in which they believe that the conservative professor would be run out of town for drawing different conclusions than a more different mind, a progressive minded professor. Is there space for different interpretations, you think, on college campuses? Sure. Sure. I mean, that's what, what historians do. I mean, in fact, I think what a lot of us who are concerned about these, these Florida bills are, we're not, just, we're, not, we're not saying anything other than, look, if you don't like our view of history, if you, don't, if you don't agree with me, fine. Let's have an argument over the evidence. Let's have a debate. Let's look at what the sources say. Let's look at what Thomas Jefferson wrote, if we want to get into the Declaration of Independence. Let's look at what he was reading, right? We have his, his library exists. The catalog of his library exists. We know what he read. And we know what he thought about what he read. Uh, l- let's look at the context in which he wrote the document, and we can have a debate. And it's possible on, on some issues in history for, for, for reasonable people to disagree. That's fine. Um, this notion that conservative and, – and let, me, let, me, let me be specific. I'm talking about history here, right? I'm, I'm a historian, and, and so I'm not going to speak more broadly than that, but that, that there's – I think a lot of conservatives have this all backwards, right? They'll say that there's a bias in higher education, that colleges you know, choose liberal professors. I think what they're failing to recognize, that, it, that that's not really it. It's, it's, it's people who, who tend to be on the left choose history, right? Um, <laughs> people who are going to spend 11 years in college or whatever the case may be, making no money during their 20s to get jobs where you know, they have to get a summer gig to get by once they're a professor. It's, it's, um, it's a certain type of person that goes into that. Um, 
it's not that conservatives are excluded from the historical professions, that they don't choose it in the first place. Well, you certainly find, um, for example, the Simon Business School, uh, business colleges are often quite conservative. I think different disciplines lend themselves perhaps a little more naturally to attracting um, not monolithic views, but you know, different shades of views that might concentrate more red or more blue if we're going to do the bifurcation. Um, is that natural to you? You think that, that that's not surprising? It's not surprising to me. Yeah, not troubling to you? No, it doesn't trouble me at all. I, mean, I, I taught. I taught for four years. My first teaching job was in Montana, and I was in a department with a one professor was a Missouri Synod Lutheran pastor who was uh, to the right of. Phyllis Schlafly. He, she, he, was, he was out there. I had um, – it was a very conservative department um, and we disagreed intensely about many historical interpretations and we had debates and arguments about those, um, those, discussion, uh, those, those subjects and then we'd have lunch afterwards. It's, it, no one's getting run out, right? If you say something racist and uh, obnoxious, well, that, that's a different – different thing. But there's plenty of room for differing interpretations. What about, when you're talking about professors, what about students? Are students who hold traditionally conservative values, which I understand in the modern framework, traditionally limited government, all that stuff, not the, you know, Trump at CPAC musing about Putin blowing up NATO headquarters stuff but conservative values that are traditionally understood. Are those students free to express them, to challenge certain ideas in class? Um, I mean, here's what Yash Monk wrote in his piece today about that quote. He said, quote, I regularly talk with students from across the political spectrum who have experienced intolerance of dissent when they deviated from a narrow ideological consensus in the classroom or even in the dining hall, they were penalized by professors or shunned by classmates, end quote. He's talking about conservative students. Do you see that? I, I don't, but I put a lot of work and time into creating an environment where students can, can, can talk freely. And, and look, sometimes um, conservative views are the minority views in, in the classes I teach. And I do get conservative students and they share their views. And if there is a tendency of students to want to gang up on them, that's, that's my job as an educator to make sure there is a, a forum, just like your job, right? It's, it's to make sure that people can speak and can hear each other and that they're addressing the evidence and that they're not just you know, spouting off. And I think that's, that's part of the role of the instructor. Um, I don't see at the college I've taught at for the last 25 years, I don't see students getting penalized. I don't see students getting persecuted. Um, but you really want to ask students that question. And so when it comes to the actual bill in question, Florida House Bill 999, which again is going to be replicated, it's already being replicated in a lot of state houses, or there's mm -hmm. flavors of it, as Professor Oberg has pointed out, South Carolina is one example. As we look at that, there is not a definition of what identity politics means or what CRT means. And FIRE has come out and said, if you don't define the terms, you give incredible latitude to political allies to, number one, claim that a, an individual classroom, a professor, or a, a school is violating this new law, and the power to supersede tenure and fire people. And you're going to have professors guessing. Like, if I'm, if I'm an art teacher and I'm talking about an artist, you know, their identity and how they expressed it in their work, am I thrown out for that? Like, like what's, where is the line there? Um, it goes into a lot of different disciplines, but certainly 
into yours. I, I wonder what you make of this notion that we, we're all supposed to know what identity politics or CRT means, and it's now afoul of the law. How would that affect your, your work, do you think? Well, look, I teach, I teach, you know, when I teach my Native American history class, I make, I make an argument, right? And we cover a lot of things. But one of the things I, I point out to students, and, and I think 99% of our students are from, from New York, uh, I point out that, look, this, this state that, that you've grown up in, the state you lived in, it couldn't have taken its current shape without a systematic program of, of indigenous dispossession. Right, and and I, we spend a lot of time looking at the documents that show how the state of New York really aggressively and at times in violation of federal law acquired Indian land. If if you know, and 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 to suggest then that you and I today, if we are homeowners in in upstate New York here on what was once Seneca land, right, to suggest that we're beneficiaries of that process of, of dispossession doesn't strike me as a terribly controversial statement, but it is the kind of statement that would veer into what some people call, you know, politically correct or identity politics. It put you in that zone where you could get beat up on by, by conservatives because it's happened <laughs> a number of times. I, 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 don't, I don't worry about it as a teacher. I, I, I try to explain my reasoning, give my evidence, and then we'll have a talk. And if critics want to come along and, and fight what I want to say, fine, get your evidence. Bring your evidence and we'll talk it over. But if they try to fire you? Well, fortunately, we're in, in New York. We don't, we, I don't think we're going to get there. But but look, it-, it, it I, I'm, I'm talking about the, the general you of your colleagues. Yeah. Because this is not just one state, as you've said. It's going to be a lot of states that, that go down. No. And, and what the, the notion that you could get fired for teaching the type of history I teach. And look, it-, it <laughs> Uh, if if New York had a law like Florida did, I would be in trouble because of the courses I teach, because of what I put on my Twitter account, because of what I write on a blog, the stuff that you just read, right? I would I would be in trouble. And the notion that I could be fired for that is just – it should be chilling to anyone. It's, it's horrifying. Okay. Um, before I get some feedback, um, I want to tie up a couple of other points with Professor Michael Oberg as we – so we talk about the <clears throat> the bill in Florida that a lot of people are talking about, but bills like it across the country. Um, at the risk of asking you to guess, which is going to be illegal under Florida law, <laughs> unpro <laughs> an unproven idea here. What do you think this is actually about, Michael? Well, I I think what one way to stir up the electorate is by stirring up their resentments and their anger. And I think that's what we see going. And you see this with Tom Cotton a couple of months back introduced his Saving American History Act, right? It's a way to cast – conservatives are using this kind of stuff to cast their opponents as being fundamentally un-American as a threat that must be uh, – protected against, right? That we must be stopped from doing whatever it is we're doing, tearing down the republic by teaching college students that their history is more complicated than people often think. I think it's designed – in the absence of other issues, it's a way to get people frightened and to get people worried, to stir up class resentments, to stir up racial resentments and get people to vote for a candidate of their – of the of conservative's choice. Then I wanted to ask you briefly about the, this inclusion <clears throat> of this little set of words in this bill 
prohibited under this new law in Florida would be the teaching of anything that is unproven theoretical or exploratory content. So that is a huge amount of science would now be outside of the bounds of the law. But I also, what if you had a professor who said that his interpretation of history is that while deeply flawed, the American project from its roots was about capitalism and that capitalism, as imperfect as it is, has pulled millions of people to a higher standard of living around the world and is the best system that's ever been invented. And I'm going to create this, this notion, this, this framework that I can see evidence for from the, early, the very beginning, that we are a nation of capitalism, that capitalism, while imperfect, is the greatest system in the world. That's a theory, and I'm, I bet you Ron DeSantis would like it, but it would be illegal to even try to connect dots. And, I mean, that's just one invented idea, but the, there's all kinds of things that oh, come sure. up in your class, right, that are ideas that can be challenged, right? Well, well look, look I, I, and I think one of the things, I think one problem with these laws is if there's a turn in the political fortune, those laws could be used to prescribe uh, teachers on the right. Of, of course. I mean, who's the next governor? Who, I mean, Florida may be a wall, but <laughs> there have been Democrats in the state house there. Well, look, you know, we're, we're coming up in a couple of years on the 250th anniversary of American independence. And, and I'm, I'm old enough to remember 1976. I was a kid in school where, where the country went nuts celebrating the bicentennial. So what's going to happen with the 250th anniversary? And what is this meeting? And, and the guy who was at the time in charge of the U.S., semi-quincentennial celebration commission he was given this talk and he's like you know we need to study the declaration of independence because it's the source of america's highest ideals we're not there yet and he, he kept sort of saying well you know we're moving forward we're not quite there yet and i thought you know we've been at this 250 years now what if those really aren't our principles right what if we really aren't committed to liberty and justice what if we aren't really Convinced? What, what, what if many Americans don't act as if all people are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights? Uh, um, and, and I sort of posed that as a question. Like maybe those aren't our values. <laughs> you know, it was just taken a while and we haven't got there yet. That kind of question, which is, you know, we will use in the classroom de deliveries to be kind of a provocative discussion starter would fall out of bounds under the terms of this law if it was strictly construed. Is this an example that you you just you talked earlier about how there are historical facts and then there are interpretations and understandings that reasonable people might disagree on. Yeah. Is this an example where oh. you say there are reasonable people who could say look, we are imperfect, but this project that we created is absolutely a social good around the world and we continue to be imperfect, but we're a beacon and we've done so much good. And then you could say We've been so far from living up to those values that I'm not sure we actually ever believed it ourselves. You think those are two reasonable views that people can hold? They're, they're reasonable views, but more than that, Evan, is having that debate is such a great way to teach. It's healthy. It's healthy because the students start to think about positions that aren't what they automatically bring into the classroom. They have to marshal evidence to bring their point, and, and to consider these other views is, is very valuable, even if it's a... a, a, a you know, kind of a provocative rhetorical question you're throwing out there. You want students to wrestle with these complicated issues because that's how they learn. If you want to defend the Constitution or you want to defend the, the, the progressive elements of the American Revolution, fine. They're there. That, that's true. There's also failures and limitations. And, and, and what I see in these laws is this notion, this belief that and, and you hear it in the discourse once a while that, that, that historians are, are teaching 
students to hate their country, that they only focus on the bad stuff. And, and, and the reason I, I brought up that example at the beginning is that it's, it's much more complicated than that, right? We both will talk about the Declaration of Independence. We both will talk about the Constitution. We both will talk about mob violence in, in the cities during the revolution. That's just part of the story. We may interpret it differently, but if we don't have evidence for our interpretation, those interpretations are useless. And, and we, we give the students the, the evidence to read. How often do you have a student say, that blew me away, that changed my mind? I have been at this for a long time every semester. Every semester I have some student come up to me halfway through the semester or the end of the semester saying, I can't believe we were never taught this before. And, and that gets, you know, that gets, you know, you brought this up, right? This, one way I think to, to teach students to be highly cynical, jaded, and down on their country is to lie to them and exclude things from them. And I think that laws like these Florida, this Florida bill, if it becomes law, or the South Carolina bill, I could see them having the opposite effect at the end of the day. Because these students, some of these students will go to college, they'll start exploring things a little more deeply, and they'll realize that they've been deceived. Have you had students challenge you, and have you found your own mind sort of moving? Yeah, yeah, all the time, especially when, when I'm teaching Indian law and we're going through court cases. Um, court cases are difficult to read. There's a range of, of – uh, there's all kinds of room for disagreement. Yeah, absolutely. Students see things I don't see. Students come at these, these, these texts that we're reading with, with stuff that I don't have, experiences I don't have, and absolutely they change my mind. Um, what we're going to do is we have to take our only break, but if you are on the phone, hang there. If you've sent an email, I'll try to read as many as I can. A ton of feedback for Professor Michael Oberg. And um, as we go to break, I'll just say that, you know, I mentioned earlier that uh, a professor and political scientist, Yasha Monk, disagrees with Michael on certain aspects of the problems perceived on campus. Yasha thinks that there is... Uh, it, it, life is too hard for conservatives on campus because of intolerance of conservative thought and views. He is deeply opposed to the DeSantis bill um, for many of the reasons that Professor Oberg is expressing. But Yashimak is saying this thing, even if it passes, is going to get blown up in court. There's no way it's going to stand up to court scrutiny. I don't know, because the appointment of judges um, and the elevation of judges around the country, I don't think we know that for sure. But Monk is saying this thing doesn't have a leg to stand on. I don't know. We'll see. Uh, but we're going to come right back. And it's all your feedback after this only break. Coming up in our second hour, a conversation with Carolyn Del Vecchio Hoffman. You might know her for her work in the Monroe County Legislature. You might also know her as the niece of Philip Seymour Hoffman and since her uncle's death, she has done work in regards to overdose prevention. She's got a lot of thoughts to share there. We'll talk about her background, how she grew up, how lots changed, and more with Carolyn Del Vecchio Hoffman next hour. All right, this is Connections. I'm Evan Dawson. Phone calls and emails on this subject. Frank in Greece first. Hi, Frank. Go ahead. Yes, hello. Uh, I just want to say that um, uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson said uh, an education Gives you, the, gives you the ability to listen to a contrary point of view without losing your confidence or your patience. And um, my second uh, uh, aphorism of his is that um, we study the humanities to become the less imperfect people that we are all capable of being. Michael, what do you think? Uh, yeah, thanks, Frank. I, I think that's ex exactly well put. Um, 
that's what a liberal arts education does. It's what we try to specialize in at Geneseo. And I think one way to do that is by exposing students to other views. Um, let me read a couple of emails. Uh, Charles wants to push back and says, you, you'd really only need to adjust your curricul- curriculum if you were a college professor in the event that you were teaching straight-up propaganda, which I realize would be difficult for a lot of college professors, even at SUNY, or he says especially at SUNY, but it will actually result in people who are better prepared for the real world instead of looking for ways to be professional victims. That's Charles. What do you think? I don't understand that. He's saying that <laughs> you as a history professor, if you were teaching in Florida— no one would be coming after you unless the, the only thing they're saying is you're not allowed to teach anti-American propaganda. That, that's nonsense. That, that, that's absolutely absurd. If you if you look at the Florida law, it is illegal under this proposed law to define American history as as, as contrary to the creation of a new nation based on the universal princi- principles stated in the Declaration of Independence. So I'd I'd ask that emailer. Okay, let's tell me how we teach the Three Fifths Compromise. Because it, it, it didn't go away without a war that killed, what, 600,000 people? This was fundamental to the, to the, <laughs> to the fabric of the country. So, so That's just a deviation. Well, it's, yeah, it's a deviation that killed 600,000 people. If you consider that a mere hiccup in the road, well, good luck. But I think there's a lot of evidence to suggest that people were willing to fight and die for the preservation of the institution of slavery. And that, that, that's something we have to talk about. And if if that emailer sees that as anti-American propaganda, well, I'm I'm deeply disappointed that that's his view, and I would wish he would be in one of my classes so we could have that discussion and we could talk about the evidence. Here's an email from Roger. It says, "Hi Evan, let me offer, as you might call it, the small C conservative view. What we what we see with the Russian invasion of Ukraine is a fascist leader taking advantage of a changing world. Americans used to understand the dangers when autocrats were on the march." and would unite to defend against it. Yes, we made some horrible mistakes over the years, but generally I feel like our common values called us to guard against the spread of murderous autocracy. But now Putin senses that the West has atrophied, and my own political party exemplifies that. The Republican Party is increasingly pro-Putin, anti-Ukraine, and just willing to endorse the erasure of an entire country. It shocks and saddens me. What does this have to do with your discussion today? Well, my fear is that in the mostly admirable efforts to teach the full and real American history, warts and all, we are sometimes going too far into a kind of anti-American mindset. Americans, some kids seem to be taught, are actually the oppressors. Americans are the problem. Our country is built on evil deeds and is undeserving of patriotism. And what happens when patriotism dies? What happens when a large share of the population decides that this country is unworthy of their affection? We lose our capacity to help others when they are at risk. We forget the values that should hold up our American project. We stand on the sidelines as people die. The irony, of course, is that it's the Republican <coughs> excuse me, the Republican Party more willing to stand aside for autocrats today. But tomorrow, I fear, it will be most of us from all political parties. So I would like our institutions to remind our kids that we are imperfect and we must learn from our mistakes. But there is a real danger to hating your own country. Thanks for listening. That, that's that's a, a, a thoughtful, wide-ranging, and, and, and really useful email. You'd like uh, to have a conversation in person with Roger? I, I, I do. I think Roger's really hitting some key points. And, and, and I would... I would emphasize that I don't I don't see 
teachers, uh, professors teaching students to hate their country. We do talk about the warts and all stuff. That's for sure, Roger. We, we, we cover that stuff quite well. But how can you... How can you not teach the revolution and not talk about the Constitution? The Constitution certainly was flawed. There's no question about that. But it also created a Constitution based on the idea where, where sovereignty is placed in the hands of the people, right? We the people. That, <laughs> whatever our discussion limitations of the Constitution, that, that was a significant achievement and a revolutionary achievement in the history of the world at that time. Because we teach things that might cause people to view the United States critically doesn't mean we don't teach things that could cause students or would lead students to view things favorably. They're, they're all part of the story. Um, and, and, you know, the, Roger raised a point about, you know, casting the United States as the oppressor. Well, in, in parts of the world, it has been. Um, with the history of indigenous peoples on this continent, it has been. With the history of, of the enslaved, it has been. And, and, and to deny that that's part of the story shouldn't hurt anyone's patriotism. It, it, if you're, if you're going to have to if, – if you have to lie about the country to get people to love it, then what is that patriotism really built on? Any relationship built on lies tends to fall apart eventually. Yeah. And I also think telling the truth is an act of love. Telling the truth – and really working on problems and, and trying to f make amends as much as possible is an act of love. It's hard. Sometimes it's harder than lying, but it is an act of love. Now, Roger is connecting all of this to what he sees right now in Ukraine, which is an interesting connection mm -hmm. he's making. I wonder what you make of that. Well, he thinks Putin saw weakness in this country and in the West in general due to a lack of I don't, patriotism, zeal to protect liberal values, et cetera. Yeah, I, I, I don't know what, what, what Putin's thinking was, and, and, and I'd, I'd rather stick to the things I do know, which is teaching history, uh, history of the United no, States. No, no, you must opine on everything. You get well, outside uh, right, your lane. Right, well, that is the thing. I'm going to become <laughs> Doris Kearns Goodwin and forecast the future and things like that. But look, um, I, I think the notion that autocracy is, is, is a threat and, and the direction a lot of the Republican Party is going, which Roger described really well in that email, is, is, is worth a consideration here, right? Where we're seeing um, really dangerous movements to restrict freedom of expression, freedom of, of speech. Um, and so you have this Republican Party that in places, you know, wants to arm teachers. It trusts them with guns, but it doesn't trust them with a history book. It trusts them with weapons, but it doesn't trust them with a copy of the Declaration of Independence. And, uh, you know, it... <laughs> I am, it's just stunning to me because there, there, there's there, there's plenty of you know and, and Roger I think was was a, the emailer referred to himself as a small C conservative. There's plenty of conservatives out there who recognize this, the importance of studying all this history as as Roger seemed to do in his email. And it just it's just stunning that we see this sort of uh, hardcore reactionary absolutist uh, response. Do you think, as Roger does, that patriotism is important for a country's security? Yeah, I do. I don't know. I mean, it's it's not my job to teach it, nor is it my job to teach students to not feel patriotism towards their country. It is my job to teach to to teach them to ask questions about the past, to dig like badgers for answers to those questions, 
and to marshal evidence to support their conclusions about the past. But you seem to be saying that patriotism doesn't just develop through this country is the greatest country in the world. Um, you know, we, we've, we've had a few deviations along the way. We've had a lot of deviations. We have continued deviation. They're, they're not even deviations if they're constantly, we're constantly deviating. There, there, there are illiberal trends in this country. There are autocratic trends in this country. There are intolerant trends in this country that go way back, right? There's, there's powerful anti-intellectual forces in American life that go back, right? Richard Hofstetter back in the late 60s wrote, wrote a book on anti-intellectualism as a, as a force in American life, right? It, it, and and the, the Republican Party of you know, the extreme right of the Republican Party is expressing that same stuff. When you go back and look at Hofstetter's anti-intellectualism in American life, it's what you're seeing, right? There's this hostility. Patriotism doesn't come by, by giving students propaganda, and there's no better way to kill an audience. Roger, I'm grateful for that email, though. I, I, yeah, I, yeah. I, I really thank you. Um, Hal in Livingston County next on the phone. Hi, Hal. Go ahead. Thank you for taking my call. <clears throat> I agree with your guest on most things. I'm not a historian, but uh, we moved to the Genesee Valley 30 years ago after the Indian Health Service uh, failed to fund us to move to the Pine Ridge uh, Indian Health Service uh, in Dakota. <clears throat> and since then, I coincidentally was driving through Canandaigua when they were honoring the Canandaigua Treaty of 1794. And I thought I had some time and I asked some of the local native folks uh, what they thought of the treaty. And they said that it was probably uh, agreed to and promoted to stop uh, the uh, <clears throat> expansion peacefully of, uh, of uh, colonists and New Yorkers uh, because there were so many natives in the area. So the question I had for your remarkable guest is uh, I've been <clears throat> trying to update myself a little on American history, reading a little bit about Kit Carson and the Mexican War, and <clears throat> also the history of the Republican Party, uh, and particularly Heather Cox uh, Richardson is a professor at Boston College who wrote um, To Make Men's Free, A History of the Republican Party. And the book that really is stunning is her more recent book, um, which is uh, How the South Won the Civil War, which uh, um, E.J. Dion described as revisionist history. But what she pointed out in it is how much of uh, the manifest destiny, go west, young man, um, and and basically uh, uh, the cowboy image on, of a cowboy hat on a horse uh, reflects, if you think of uh, recent presidents who often were depicted on horses or next to them with an axe in their hand or uh, a cowboy hat on. So I was wondering if your, your guest uh, happens to be familiar with uh, Heather Cox Richardson's work or John Meacham, uh, and there was light about Lincoln. Because it, it wasn't a, a simple story like I was taught in New York public schools. <laughs> That's something you've heard before. R right. Um, thanks, Hal. In fact, we should we should talk sometime if you're Livingston County, if you, if you have some experience with the Indian Health Service, because that could, that could help in my classes quite a bit. I, I, I follow um, Heather Cox Richardson does a lot of great writing on Substack, and she's really 
become a major force, I think, in bringing historical perspectives to current current debates. I haven't read any of her, her recent books, though, and I haven't read John Meacham's book either. I'm, I'm, it's hard enough to keep up with my own fields in early American and in, in, in Native American history. Um, but, you know, Canandaigua, it's funny you mentioned Canandaigua. I, I wrote a book about Canandaigua about five, well, seven years ago now, and the, the treaty, and this is one of these great stories where you have a treaty, it's commemorated every November 11th in Canandaigua with a parade and, and um, a celebration, which is the anniversary of the treaty. And this was a treaty that guaranteed to um, the Six Nations of Indians the free use and enjoyment, the right to the free use and enjoyment of their lands as long as they chose to occupy it. Um, and and the, the people with whom you spoke, Hal, were absolutely correct, right? They, they hoped that they would have this land and they would be able to do with it what they wished. Um, it d- didn't last long. There were a number of treaties that followed thereafter. Um, the Senecas were, were you know, regally screwed over by the state of New York and by the United States in, in the first half of the 19th century. Um, that's a history that New York kids don't learn, right? They, they don't they, – they, they learn about Cherokee removal, but they don't learn about the removal of New York Indians, Right. And students are off. That's one of these questions where students go, "Well, why? Why don't I don't understand why we weren't taught this?" And I go, well, "I don't either. Why do you think you weren't taught this? Is it that the people putting the books together don't know, or is they don't want to talk about these issues?" And and I don't I don't know the answer to that question, but I want them to think about the question. And learning that this state took the shape it did because of so much dispossession, it doesn't turn them into. American-hating people. It, it, it turns them into people with a richer and more nuanced understanding of the country's history. Hal, thank you. Let me get Bill and Victor next. Hi, Bill. Go ahead. Okay, so I don't know if you covered this earlier, but I would like to make the connection between the banning of books and the uh, restriction of what can be taught uh, in schools. So in, I, in the 1930s, um, there was, people were not allowed to teach what was called Jewish science such as Einstein's theory of relativity, which must have been flawed because a Jew had created it. And then we had the banning of books and the burning of books in, in, in Germany. In, in, and so I just like to point this out, and it can never be repeated often enough. It did not begin with the gas chambers. It began with the banning and burning of books. And once those people got power, it was a slippery slope to everything that came after. Thank you for letting me say that. Hi, Bill. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, Professor Oberg? Yeah, yeah, Bill, I, I think we'd agree that the kind of legislation that's being considered in some of these states is, 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 a, is, a, is a threat to far more than college professors like me and a threat to far more than, than students, but a really a threat, fundamental threat to freedom and inquiry and, and liberty. On the subject of books— there is a growing clamor in a lot of places. We see it with Mouse. We see it with so much that um, seeks to remove books from even libraries, giving kids the option to read. And one of the, the refrains we hear is that, you know, um, it, it's either going to be teaching uh, bad lessons uh, or making kids uncomfortable. And you wrote in your recent piece that you – it seems to me that you find some irony here because one of the criticisms of the – sort of the progressive movement right now or so-called wokeism is that um, they're not comfortable with being uncomfortable. They always need safe spaces, et cetera, et cetera. 
But what you see in in the Florida bill <laughs> is a desire to make sure no student has to encounter uncomfortable ideas about our our own American history, and that you actually think there is value with uncomfortable uh, with grappling with discomfort. Yeah. First of all. Students aren't complaining about what they're what, about being uncomfortable. This is some middle-aged lawmakers in 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 in, in Tallahassee doing this sort of stuff. But look, look, it, there's a lot of projection in in in, in these complaints about text. And, and and I guess my response to a lot of this is, what are you afraid of? Are you that afraid of a children's book? I mean, I mean you have kids. How many books have you read over your life? How many of them can you even remember now? How many is that kid going to remember? Lighten up. I mean. Jeez, it, it, so you read about a, a, a transgendered character in a children's book. Who cares? Who cares? It doesn't matter. It's not a threat to you. It, it, it doesn't hurt you. It doesn't harm you. Just lighten up and don't be so afraid. Well, let me get one more <laughs> phone call. This is from Paul in Brighton. Hi, Paul. Got to keep it tight. Go ahead, sir. I will. I will. Uh, just again, once again, a fascinating show with amazing guests and call-ins and and text. I'm learning quite a bit here, but uh, the one thing that I just I, I don't quite understand is, um, you know, how are these 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 uh, young adults that are going to be at these colleges, um, you know, they're going to lose any chance of, of developing any kind of critical uh, reasoning skills, questioning. I don't even know how they're going to be employable. I hate to bring it down to such a base level, but uh, you know, how are these people going to function after they get through this? Uh, you know, this educational system in Florida that uh, doesn't allow them to come in contact with anything that might uh, re require them to think, of, you know, and get a little bit uncomfortable. I don't uh, I just don't understand how they're going to function in society. And that's that's a scary thought for the for the future. And I will leave with a quick shout out to Geneseo. Uh, very proud to have someone in my family uh, graduate from Geneseo. And uh, you guys do an amazing job down there. So with that, I'll be on my way. Have a great day. Thank you, Bill. About yeah. a last minute, and this is a good uh, chance to kind of offer some final thoughts and maybe uh, add to what Bill had to say there. Go ahead, Professor. Y yeah, I think that what, what, what I hear saying is that some of these states are considering coming up with their own accreditation agencies to approve these colleges because they know that the agencies out there doing accrediting would have the exact same concerns you just raised, is that the, 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 the level of education is pretty low. Um, Students learn by asking questions and answering questions. Students learn by they, they 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 learn by provoking, by pushing the boundaries, by um, testing ideas, by trying and by failing. And the type of legislation that Florida is doing is is turning education into this sort of rote, soul killing, facts, um, you know, non controversial stuff. And it will be the most boring history they will ever learn. And, and I think, uh, you know, one, one thing we, we talked about at the very beginning, and I think this is something that kind of runs through this whole, whole controversy, is the massive amount of historical illiteracy in this country. Um, there was a survey done a couple years ago where, you know, huge numbers of people are more, more people know the Simpsons family than they know the five freedoms in the First Amendment. You think it's getting worse? I hope not. I don't know. I mean, you, you have a lot of interested students every year. I wonder if you've seen the baseline change at all for their knowledge coming in. The students are more interested and they know less.
Professor, thank you. Uh, I do appreciate you being here. Thanks for, for reaching out on this issue. Um, and, uh, you know, we will be in touch because this is probably not the only bill that we will see like it. Thank you. No, it won't be. Okay, thanks. Professor Michael Oberg from SUNY Geneseo, distinguished professor of history and the author of numerous books on American history. More connections coming up in just a moment.